this short series on the Psalms or soul songs, as we're, we're calling them. Um, uh, it, was, it was beautiful last week when we were looking at the whole topic of lament, um, especially one encouragement that I got even this morning when I was told, yeah, yeah, I heard it was grim. <laughs> okay, well, that's encouraging. No, but it was true. People, people were really honest, and it was beautiful. The, the worship was, was lovely. Responses were, were heartfelt. And we're going to spend a bit more time in the Psalms. Um, maybe, maybe you've had this experience, either as a parent or maybe as a child. A child does something wrong. And uh, you, you take them aside and you say, right, say sorry. And so they go, sorry. <laughs> and then you come out with one of the stupidest lines ever. Say it like you mean it. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's better. <laughs> so you're rewarding good acting, not sincerity. And the child's going, result. Two insincere apologies. I'm all right. <laughs> Say sorry like you mean it. Earlier this week, I was on um, Facebook, or as my mum calls it, the Facebook, and um, one of my friends, a guy called Frank, who's not in any way um, a friend of, of Christianity. He's quite a, a cynical in regards to any religion at all. And he posted a story about um, a priest who has just been found guilty of using church funds to fund his, shall we say, immoral activities. And what my friend put in his comment, he said, oh, well, never mind, he just needs to say sorry and everything will be fine, dot, dot, dot. And I, I was kind of disturbed because what he said kind of just rung a bit, it echoed our, our beliefs in, in, in grace of God, but but I felt, I felt disturbed, and it made me wonder about, does it sound like a, such a disregard for offense when we say that? When we say people, you know, say this little prayer, um, say sorry for your sins, and, and God will forgive you, it'll be all right. Or, or maybe during our weekly prayers, we, we have confessions within our prayers, and we think, oh, that'll, that'll do. You know, you, you kind of say, we're going to do a confession of sins, and you go back over the week, go, right, did I have that second bit of cake or not? Um, did a sin then or not? And you rack your brain about what can I say sorry for? Or maybe we just do a catch-all and we say the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses, it's all done and dusted, we're all fine. Is that enough? Maybe we, in our Reformed tradition, it's 500 years, we're going to be celebrating um, the Reformation and Martin Luther sticking up his complaints on the door of a church that, that prompted the, the Protestant Reformation. But we may mock at some of the medieval concepts of, of um, confession and, and purgatory and penances and, uh, and things, like, things like that. But they had such a sense of the seriousness of sin that maybe we are in danger of losing with our kind of fast food drive-through grace dispension, dispensation mentality. That we're just a bit too quick with the whole confession thing. As I said last week, we did this cheery but apparently grim series um, or sermon on lament. And noticing that of all the Psalms, the largest group of about 60 Psalms are the Psalms of lament. And uh, it was by honestly, honestly coming before God. But within this, context, this um, group of 
lamenting psalms are another group, a subcategory, and they're called the penitential psalms. Um, I told someone I was speaking on the penitential psalms. They said, what's penitential? I said, they're the sorry songs. They're the ones that say, I'm really sorry. And there are seven of them. And we're going to be focusing on one which is probably the most famous one. The one that we're really familiar with, and we're probably familiar because we know this phrase, create in me a clean heart, O God, and, and renew a right spirit within me. Um, whether because we've learned that as part of a memory verse one time, or because there are postcards of it left, right, and center, or we know the Keith Green song, whatever. That's the part of, this, of the psalm that we're familiar with. It's a very familiar um, psalm. We know the context. We said it in the context is about David and Bathsheba. It's about um, David. If you don't know the story, I'll quickly recap. The king of Israel um, was looking out of his um, window one night and sees this woman bathing on her rooftop, kind of dodgy in the first sense. But anyway, he goes and says, I want her. And they said, he, she's married. He brings her into his harem anyway. And he finds out she's married. He says, who is it? Uriah. He sends Uriah off to the front line, retreats his soldiers. Uriah dies. He takes Bathsheba as his wife. Happy days result until it says God was displeased with David. And he sends his prophet Nathan and let me just read to you very quickly what it says here. It says, Nathan turns up. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 12. The Lord sends Nathan. And Nathan comes to him with a story. He said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich, one poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had one ewe lamb, which he treasured dearly. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and it was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man. And, and the rich man wanted to give him something to eat, and he didn't want to use any of his own cattle, so he went to the poor man and took his ewe, and he shared it with him, even though it was, your, you, it was the poor man's only animal. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, this man deserves to die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. I can't read that line without seeing in my mind's eye. Pa Grip from VeggieTales. Now, has anyone seen VeggieTales? They, they, they take Bible stories and they animate them with vegetables. It sounds weird, but watch them. They're brilliant. They'll stick in your head like an earworm. But... <laughs> I can't read that line because after doing this thing on a flannel graph and King George, because it's about a ducky, not a Bathsheba, and he says, right, this person deserves to die. Who is it? And Pa Grip, in his elderly, south side New York accent says, you are dead, man. <laughs> so I can't hear Nathan apart from an elderly New York grip. <laughs> he says, David, you are that man. God says, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house, etc., etc., etc. You have sinned before me. That's the context. And we're really familiar with this story, with this psalm. It's actually an incredibly well-structured and well-written piece of Hebrew poetry. It's got mirror um, couplets in it. We can even see it in English how that works. There are Hebrew rhymes. If you know Hebrew, verse 2, it's got lots of Hebrew words that actually phonetically rhyme. There are repetitions throughout. There are, it's a chiastic poem, so there's different parts are echoed in different places and magnified for, for impact. There are thematic rhymes throughout it. It's incredibly well structured. This is the structure of Psalm 51. 
Restoration prayers, one at verse 1 and 2. A confession, verse 3 to 6. Restoration prayer again, the central part that creates in me a clean heart, verses 7 to 12. And then more thanksgiving. I would say thanksgiving plus, but we'll get to that in a minute. And then another restoration prayer. It's like an arrowhead. That's Psalm 51. It's an incredibly well-written piece of literature. And so we're going to explore this briefly together and see what we can learn from this familiar psalm. So David starts off, Have mercy on me, O God. Indeed, (laughs) according to your unfailing love. From the very start of this psalm, David's on his face. He throws himself on God's mercy. In response to Nathan's prophetic and dramatic revelation of God's knowledge of David's sin, he is completely aware of his need of God's mercy and not reliant on his own merit. He had lots of things going for him. He was the anointed king of Israel. He'd done a whole lot of stuff. He could have called a lot of things up. There was no recourse to his merit. He falls on God's mercy. There's no appeal to good character. There's no, but it's my first offense. It's none of that business. He doesn't say, remember that giant? That was good. Can you think favorably about that? He just throws himself on God's mercy, knowing he deserves nothing of God's favor, but just to call out for his mercy. But it's based on something calls out on God's mercy based on this Hebrew word, which is called hesed. Hesed. This is throughout the Old Testament. This word appears again and again and again. Here, it's translated as unfailing love. Other places, it describes a covenant loyalty from God. He says, I will be your God, and even if you reject me, I will not reject you. I will be your God in spite of you rejecting me. It's that hymn, O love that will not let me go. It's that passionate, furious, unrelenting love of God the Father to his creation in spite of their rejection. Hesed. It's throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, it evolves to a word that we're very familiar with, a word called grace. Have mercy on me, God, according to your grace. He throws himself on God's mercy. And what does he ask him? He says this, blot out my transgressions, wash away my iniquities, and cleanse me from my sin. This is not a case of, whoopsie, I've done it again, naughty me. This is David on his face. Blot out my transgressions, wash away my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Three phrases, three poetic ways of saying exactly the same thing. Just poetic effect. I think there's something more. I think this reflects David's seriousness of sin. The seriousness and the pervasiveness of sin. This is not an oops, I did it again. This is I'm taking this deadly seriously. Because we need to take sin seriously, but actually we don't today, do we? We have to take the damage that sin does seriously. It's pervasive, it's invasive, it's infectious. He says, blot away, wash away my iniquities, cleanse me from my sin. Um, she's sitting here, so she's gonna get, I'm going to get in trouble. Helen doesn't want me to talk about this. We, have a, we had a mold problem in our shower room. She was disgusted I was going to share this with you. 
Oops, I did it again. Um, Preacher getting heckled by his wife, not good. Okay, we had this problem, and we scrubbed it, and then after it was beautiful and clean, and then it would come back again, and we'd scrub it again, and it would come back again, and we eventually have conquered it by doing what Psalm 51 says. She said it up perfectly. I did. Okay. That's domestic later. Okay. <laughs> I followed Psalm 51. I blotted it out. I scraped it off. I promise you, I did. Okay. Washed it off with water. And then we put a cleaning agent on it. Okay, take it away from the very, obviously, <laughs> scary story about that. What about red wine? You spill red wine on the white carpet. It's panic time. You mop up the red wine or you put salt on it. You blot it out. Then you wash it with cold water or something to kind of flush away the debris. And then you put a treatment on it to clean it. This is deep cleaning. David is not talking about a a kind of a quick wash here. He's talking about a deep, thorough, eradicating sort of cleaning. Thoroughly get rid of this awfulness that I have done. God, get rid of it. What can wash away my sin? After two. One, two. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. When we did the series on Revelation, we spoke about the fact that the cross is a historical event in time. But its salvific efficacy goes across eternity. If you like that phrase, I do. It is effective over eternity. The reason God can forgive past, present, and future is because the cross towers over eternity. The blood of Jesus washes away sins, even here in Psalm 51. We have to take sin seriously and the removal of sin seriously. But in order for this cleansing to happen, to occur, David, the psalmist, and we have to play our part. And what's that? David says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Did he? Did David think that he'd messed up? Because it seems a bit of a shock to him when you read that Nathan turns up. Did he know that he'd sinned? We might think it's fairly obvious, but he was an all-powerful king in the ancient Near East. If he said someone deserved to die, no one argued the death sentence was carried out. If he wanted a woman to be in his harem, she was brought into his harem, no questions asked. He was the all-powerful king. He could do what he wanted. It's what kings did back then, isn't it? So did David think he was in the wrong? I think he probably did. I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. This is de facto the guilty conscience. You try to bury and bury and pretend it doesn't exist. We probably all experience that kind of sense of doing something wrong in our lives. Maybe we still carry the burden of of doing something and, and, and feeling that we haven't got it sorted. Unaddressed guilt and sin eats away at us. It affects us. It damages And this is real guilt. I'm not talking about the the kind of um, paranoid, guilty conscience that maybe someone says, who ate that last Jaffa cake? It was me. It wasn't, but it was me anyway. 
This is about real guilt where God puts a finger and says, you need to sort that out. The thing is, David has to own up here. He has to say, yeah, it was me. I did it. We use that phrase, owning up to something. Do we miss the fact that it's about owning what you've done? I did it. No excuses. No denials. I did it. It's not our normal reaction, is it? Our normal reaction would be, yes, I did it, but dot, 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 an excuse comes in. Have you read some of those um, insurance comments that people do on their insurance forms? Like, I was driving my car into a driveway, and a tree which doesn't exist jumped out, and I rammed into it, and then it suddenly disappeared. (laughs) Or it wasn't my fault that the pedestrian was walking towards me. He walked into me. Um, People kind of offload the blame. It's someone else's fault. It's the way I was brought up. It's because of that person did that to me, because of this, that, or the other one. Excuses, excuses, excuses. Or it's denial. (laughs) It wasn't me. A friend of mine um, is a minister of a a church, and uh, they were discovering that someone was was setting fire to the rubbish in their bins regularly at nighttime. And they were really worried about this, didn't know what to do, so they set up a CCTV um, camera. And they filmed what happened. So one night, this fella comes up, someone who they knew comes up, and and the camera's there, it sees him opening up the bin, fiddling around with something, and then walking away, and then fire engulfing the bin. And so they, they took the video cassette. Cassette? What am I talking about? The digital download. Um, <laughs> and they brought this guy in, and they showed it to him and said, look, there's you doing this. And he went, wasn't me. But it's you on the screen. So, not me. Utter denial in the blatant... But we know it's you. David could have said it wasn't. I didn't do that. It was just happened to accident, Nathan. David is none of that. No denial, no excuses. He just owns up. How much do we own up to the stuff that we've done before God? And say, yeah, God, without excuses, without denials, it was me. You see, because he says, and it's against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And I go, really, Dave? Really? Just God? I think Bathsheba, Uriah, and probably the people who were involved in setting up Uriah's death might disagree with you there. I think they might have been a little bit upset with what you did. I think that might be hurt. This is not David doing the whole, I'll just say sorry to God and everything will be okay. Because in the Jewish Mishnah, which is the religious writing, it says, before any Jew can go to to Yom Kippur, the day of atonement where you make things right with God, before you can do that, you will need to have made things up with your victim, the person who you have upset. Jesus says it as well, Matthew chapter 5, he says, before you give your sacrifice, go and sort out the issue with your brother. This is not that we go through every sin and thought and deed and action and go right in. It's a big list, but I'll start working through it alphabetically. This is where God says, you need to sort this out. You need to sort that. That person's still affected, and so are you. We listen to the Holy Spirit conviction. So before David can say any of this to God, the prerequisite is he has tried to make recompense to those of you that are hurt. But it tells the truth that fundamentally sin is open rebellion against God. Whether it's mass genocide or malicious gossip, whatever on the scale of things that we pretend we don't have a scale of sin, but secretly we really do, regardless of that, anything like that is a conscious rebellion against 
God's ways. Look at what Nathan's indictment to David says. He says, this is what God says, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil? You struck down Uriah the Hittite, you killed him, and you taken his wife into your own household. God said, I gave you this, but you took that. I gave you what you needed. I blessed you hugely, but you took what you wanted. And this is a big reflection of what happened in Eden. God says to humanity in that beautiful poetic picture in Genesis, I give you all this, all the trees of the garden are for you. Just don't go there. All this is yours. I gave you this, but you decided to take this in open rebellion and rejection of what God has done. And that's what David did. And that sums up every sin that we are involved in, word or deed or action or attitude or inaction. It's a conscious rejection of God's ways. David exploited his position to his own advantage in self. And fundamentally, it's fundamentally rebellion against God. And it has its casualties. And we are the casualties of people's sins and other people are the casualties of ours. And in our wrestling with that, we go back to last week and we cry out laments to God as victims and perpetrators. David was aware of God's judgment. He knew what he deserved was his punishment. And when he admits his sinfulness at birth, it's not an excuse. It's not saying, oh, well, I'm only human, or, you know, everybody makes mistakes. He's just aware, not just of his sin, but his inherent sinfulness, our propensity to go against God, not just the actual act. He's aware of where it comes from. And the fact that in the secret, deep place, he knows that God has taught him otherwise. We have a conscience which tells us right from wrong. And yet we often reject it. We dull it down. God says, I expect more from you. So David says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Perhaps you've had that experience, maybe at primary school, where um, the dental nurse is coming in and you've brushed your teeth, especially. You haven't done it for six weeks, but this is the first time. She's coming in and it'll be fine. So you present yourself in front of the, uh, the dental nurse and you smile sweetly. And you go, result. And then the nurse breaks out the little purple tablet. Disclosure tablets. And they say, bite down on that. And then munch away for a little bit. Then all of a sudden your teeth, which were beautifully clean, are showing ever so slightly signs of plaque and yuckiness. And you go, actually, your teeth aren't as clean as you thought. And so then the nurse gets on with the scrubbing and the cleaning and gets it really clean. And then by the end of it, you take the, the thing in your mouth again and it's completely clean. And then the nurse says, you are clean. And you walk away with a big smile until you have your next chocolate biscuit. <laughs> she says, you are clean. You know that you are clean. And this is similar to the whole um, cleanse me with hyssop. 
Hyssop is a, a herb in the Middle East. It's a medicinal herb, but it was used um, not in, in, uh, in um, the Passover. It was what they painted the blood on the doorposts with, was with hyssop. But the Levites, the priests, used it in the ritual purification ceremony. So if a person who had something like leprosy had been healed, they would present themselves. You know why Jesus said to the lepers, go present yourself to the, the priests? That's the same sort of thing. They present themselves to the priest. They'd affirm, yes, you're clean. And as a symbol, they would take hyssop and they put it in the, the holy water and sprinkle the person with the water and declare this person is now clean. And they'd walk away going, they said I'm clean, I'm clean. Jesus says, you are clean. You are clean. I say so. You are clean, I say so. It's a pronouncement. It says that you are whiter than white. Remember, clothing in those days would have been a slight kind of, even white would have been a bit mucky. So whiter than snow garments, that clean would have been really bright and shocking. Total cleansing is announced. We are promised it in 1 John. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. He is just. He will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. This is Psalm 51 in a nutshell, isn't it? No matter what I say about it on reflection, no matter what anyone else says about it, and no matter what Satan says about it, remember his name is the accuser. How often have we been forgiven of something and we feel the prodding of the accuser saying, you're still rubbish. You still are guilty. You're still sinful. And we even look at ourselves and we go, I can't be forgiven. I've said the prayer, I've meant every word, and I can't be forgiven. Jesus says, you are clean. I say you're clean. You are clean. I'm not denying that sin has consequences and leaves a mark, but that mark is blotted out, covered over, redacted by the blood of Jesus. It covers over and says, you cannot see it anymore. I will cover it with my blood. And I think this speaks about our difficulty in accepting that we're forgiven. I have the privilege of hearing lots of stories that encourage me in my own walk. It says, I'm not the only one that finds it hard to forgive myself or accept God's grace and God's forgiveness. When he says, you're clean, I too easily fall back to listening to the enemy's lies and not accepting God's forgiveness. And I come to him against, God, I'm sorry I did that. And he says, sorry for what? You're clean. You're clean. This is never ever about diminishing the seriousness of sin, but magnifying the grace of God. And it's not just about cleansing, it's about restoring as well. The bit that we know really well, create in me a pure heart, God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence like you did Saul. I don't want to be alienated or rejected or take your spirit from me, that relationship, because sin damages relationship between one another and humans, but it damages our relationship with God. But restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant a willing spirit to sustain me. Do you know the thing we had to do with our mold problem, sorry Helen, is that we had to do something more than just clean. We had to change the conditions so that it wouldn't happen again. And if you have a heart transplant, 
because you've been a smoker and a drinker and overeater all your life that didn't do a bit of exercise. You get a brand new heart. You continue that, that pattern of activity, you'll get a bad heart again. So we have to change the lifestyle around us. When it says, restore to me the joy of salvation, it means that something has been lost. Something has been broken. And we have to reject going back. We use the word repentance, and we just think it's about turning around 180 degrees and going a different way. Jolly good fun. Repentance is bigger than that. It's saying, I completely reject that way of living that I've been before. And my intention is to go this way and never look back that way. That's repentance. It's not, I go this way, but you know, when the mood takes me, I'll just swivel back around again, which is, in fact, how we deal with it normally. Repentance is about a rejection of a previous way. Have we lost the joy of our salvation? Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Have any of us lost that joy? Because it easily happens. It easily happens if you've been a Christian an awfully long time and you get used to it. We get used to the language. They become cliches, the grace of God. We become complacent. We're used to the concept of forgiveness. We've explained it lots and lots of times, haven't we? And somehow we presume grace rather than beseeching it of God. Jesus said in Revelation to one of the churches, he said, return to your first love. Go back to your first love. I wonder if many of us have lost the wonder awesomeness, the amazing outrageousness of God's grace to us as individuals. Have you ever been with someone who's just become a Christian from a really mucky situation? They're really irritating, aren't they? Because they're so enthusiastic. And we're British, we don't do enthusiasm. Either that or their story inspires and reminds you of the day that you said to Jesus, I choose you. Thank you for saving me. David says, I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. My story of salvation will be shared with other people. That's what he says. I'm going to use a word which I know many will feel uncomfortable with. I do apologize. So brace yourselves. The word is evangelism. Telling others about Jesus. Now, there's not much of a reaction there, but I know you're quivering in your boots if I said, go out there and be an evangelist. Oh, it's someone else's job. Nonsense. Maybe because we've lost the joy of our salvation, we don't see the necessariness of passing it on. We've forgotten and maybe never even appreciated the seriousness of sin and sinfulness and its eternal consequences. Maybe we've dissolved it to and everybody gets in, so what's the big deal? We lose the appreciation of sin. If we lose the appreciation of the severity of sin, we lose the wonder of grace. All worship, ministry, evangelism, discipleship, and mission has at its foundation what God has done for us in His undeservingly forgiving us, in His undeservingly cleansing us and restoring us. That is the base out of all worship ministry. That is it. And if we lose that wonder, then we lose the, our effectiveness of sharing in worship, in ministry, in mission, and certainly in evangelism. Because people want to see that this makes a difference or has made a difference in your life. We can go through the motions 
of religiosity. Go through the sacrificial things. It talks about here, you don't delight in sacrifice. You don't delight in religiousness. Religious ritual and rote reading is nothing without humble horror at hamartia and a hankering for holiness. Hamartia is another word for sin. I just couldn't think of another one beginning with H. Religious ritual and rote reading is nothing. Take away those sacrifices. If without it of the humble heart that is seeking after God and is horrified at the horror of sin. Because the sacrificial system didn't save anyone. It was a picture of what God had done in forgiving us. In the same way as baptism doesn't clean anybody. The phrase that we use in baptism class is that baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. And that's what the sacrificial system was. The sacrifice that looking forward to Jesus or looking back to Jesus through communion and through baptism, these are pictures of what God has done. They don't do it themselves. That's magic. We don't do that. We believe in God who loves us. It represents the reality of God's forgiveness achieved at the cross and effective over all time and over all sin. It's what God looks for, is a broken and contrite spirit. It's very easy to do a sermon or a talk on Psalm 51 and for people to walk away feeling rubbish about the fact that they're sinners. If you do that, you have missed the point. And you've missed the point of the gospel. My uh, pastor at university, Bob File, used to say this. All we are are sinners saved by grace. Some people look at that and think, that's a bit of an awful way to look. We're all sinners. All we are are sinners saved by grace. John Newton said this in the movie Amazing Grace. Although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner. Christ is a great Savior. Amen? Amen. We're going to worship. We're going to pray and respond. So I can invite the, the band up. That would be great. And the prayer team's going to be up here at the front as well.